1: 2018 is almost over and we're looking back at the stories that made headlines in our region this year. This is Florida Matters. Support for Florida Matters comes from the National Foundation for Transplants. Right now, hundreds of Tampa residents need an organ transplant they can't afford. You can join National Foundation for Transplants, Operation Second Chance at transplants.org to learn how to help give someone a second chance at life. From the studios at WUSF Public Media, I'm Robin Sussingham. Much has happened in our state this year. We elected a new governor, a U.S. senator, and a number of other political positions. We lost 17 lives in a mass shooting that led to new laws about school safety. Today on Florida Matters, we revisit some of the major events and news stories that affected Tampa Bay and our state in 2018. We begin on a lighter note. Back in January, thousands flocked to Tampa for the 2018 Hockey League All-Star Game. It was the same weekend as one of the city's busiest events, the annual Gasparilla Pirate Festival. What could have been a traffic and security nightmare turned out to be a success. Florida Matters did a show ahead of the big weekend, and it featured this story from WUSF reporter Bobby O'Brien about whether sunny Tampa Bay is a hockey town.
2: We caught up with Lightning founder Phil Esposito during an admission at a recent game. The Lightning were playing one of the original six National Hockey League teams, the Montreal Canadiens. Esposito admits bringing professional ice hockey to the land of sunshine and palm trees in 1992 was a gamble. But he got some reassurance from Gabe Paul, a former president of the Yankees and Cleveland Indians, who was living in Tampa at the time.
3: I asked
4: him one question. Do you think hockey could survive here? And he said, well, we love football, we love car crashes, we love wrestling, and we love boxing. Seems to me you got it all
2: in hockey. The Hall of Fame player knew he had a challenge, creating a team in a non-traditional hockey market like Tampa. Montreal sports writer Arpan Basu was covering that Canadian Lightning matchup and he agreed that traditional hockey fans are tough. No Hockey fans, especially in Canada, we want everyone to
5: love our, our game And then when the NHL goes and reaches out into these new markets to get new people to love their game, they they get mocked and they get made fun of. There was a lot of that going on when they initially
2: came to Tampa. But Esposito shrugged off those early taunts that ice hockey doesn't belong in a place with no winter. And the truth is you play indoors. You don't play outside. Today, Espo does the color commentary for Lightning Radio broadcasts. Jim Davilano with the Detroit Red Wings says the Lightning has come a long way since playing at the State Fairgrounds Expo Hall and St. Petersburg's Tropicana Field, known then as the Thunderdome. He says players like Vincent LeCavier and Martin St. Louis winning the Stanley Cup in 2004, plus several playoff bids since, have earned the Lightning and its fans respect. This is a hockey town and will be forever. They've made it. In fact, at many Lightning home games, you can find Scotty Bowman, the coach with the most wins in NHL history and 14 Stanley Cups. I happen to live in Sarasota. I know a lot of people that come up from there. The kids are playing hockey in the areas now. Since the Lightning arrived, the number of ice rinks has increased. There are high school teams, street hockey, and club hockey. Seven years ago, Lightning owner Jeff Vinick took over the team. He decided one way to grow the fan base was to teach life skills and hockey to Tampa Bay youngsters. We're gonna give out 100,000, actually we're gonna do more than 100,000 sticks and pucks to uh, kids throughout the area. We're up to 70,000 right now after two years and we're gonna keep going because again, let's get everybody to love this great sport. It's a strategy that makes Esposito proud. We're 25 years in existence. We haven't got the tradition of the six, original six teams, but you have to make your own tradition. And that, according to Espo, is a winning team in a hockey town, or you might say, a hockey paradise.
6: We got a true hockey paradise,
2: come on. Just like in one of the Lightning's promotional
1: songs. For For Matters, I'm Bobby O'Brien. Also in January, St. Petersburg inaugurated Mayor Rick Kreisman for his second term in office. I sat down with Mayor Kreisman for an episode in our Newsmakers series. We listened back to some of that conversation, which touches on two other hot topics from 2018, the bus rapid transit proposal and the Tampa Bay area's bids to host the next Amazon headquarters. Why do you think that Tampa Bay was not picked for the Amazon headquarters, <laughs> and what do you plan on doing to make St. Petersburg a better candidate for other possible relocations from larger companies?
6: So, you know, I think the Tampa St. Pete area, first off, those of us involved in this, both Mayor Buckhorn and myself, we knew that we had some, some very good positives that we could talk about, but we also knew there were some things that uh, were not necessarily helpful to us. First and foremost, a good mass transit system. Uh, secondly, a, a state that was willing to put in significant incentives to a, try and attract an Amazon business to this community. But it still, uh, we thought, was important for us to be a player in this in this competition, so to speak, mm-hmm. because we wanted to raise our profile. It, I think, elevated our presence nationally for any other business that was taking a look at Amazon and saying, "Who responded?" And what do the responses look like? And maybe Amazon might not be interested in them, but we might be. And so I think we put ourselves in a good position in that respect.
1: So it was a marketing exercise in in one sense.
6: Absolutely. I do think, and I've said this before, that having or not having a really quality mass transit system, and this isn't said to be a knock on PSTA or heart, But you compare us to other cities that made the cut, a lot of whom do have much better transit systems in place than we do.
1: What do you think (laughs) about the bus rapid transit plan between St. Pete and Tampa?
6: Yeah, so I think light rail has a place here, but I think if we take the position that unless it's light rail, we're not going to move forward, then I don't know that we're ever going to move forward. And so, you know, it's not a matter of settling, as some may have, you know, have said. But I'm also pragmatic and know that if, if we just hold out for light rail, we might never move forward. And we've got to start taking steps forward to get some kind of mass transit in place and get people used to utilizing uh, alternative forms of transportation other than their car. And if it starts with bus rapid transit, then that's what it starts with. But I also believe that we shouldn't settle in on just one technology and say, that's the end-all, be-all. You know, and the thing with, with BRT that, that I like, obviously, the cost of implementing it is significantly less. And you, know, you can establish a route and see if it works. If you get great ridership, eventually, if you have a dedicated lane, which is ideally the way BRT works you can install a rail on that lane and make it more permanent. But that's the beauty of, of BRT, is it gives you the flexibility to see is that route you are thinking is gonna be effective? Is it truly effective? If it's not, then you can tweak it and move it and try and put it in a place that it is more effective.
1: February 14th made history in Florida and the nation. 17 people, mostly teenagers, were killed in the Parkland school shooting on Valentine's Day. The tragedy reignited national debate about gun control and dominated the Florida legislative session. The shooting and its aftermath came up on Florida Matters several times. In one show, we met 18-year-old Lenore Munoz, a recent graduate of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. She was one of thousands of students and staff who fled to safety while shooter Nicholas Cruz used an AR-15 to kill his victims that day. Health News Florida reporter Sammy Mack in Miami helped Munoz record her experiences in the weeks after the shooting leading up to her graduation. Florida Matters aired that audio diary this spring. We hear a portion of that now. So, um...
7: My name's Lenore, that's spelt L-E-O-N-O-R, last name M-U-N-O-Z. I've said that so many times over the last couple of weeks. I've been doing so many interviews, so many rallies, meetings. Today, it's Wednesday the 21st of March. It's a couple of days before the March. I should probably be packing right now. I'm not going to D.C. but I'm going to be in Boston instead. My sister, Becca, she goes to Northeastern and she's helping organize the march there, which is really cool. And If I'm not talking to people planning for this, this march, I'm breaking down crying. On Friday, the Friday after it happened, I went to visit my friend the Fellowship of the Ring was on Netflix, so she just put it on. Which, you know, meant a lot to me because I know that this isn't really her favorite. It seemed kind of like our story. I mean, the Hobbits, they started off in the Shire. This good, safe, if a little boring place. Which, to me, seemed a lot like Parkland. We we call it Parkland, or it's safe after Darkland. <laughs> Anyways, the hobbits One
2: ring to rule them all One ring to find
7: them The one ring tempts everybody one Ring to bring them all And in the darkness Find them uh, At the moment that I was watching it, it seemed like The ring was these weapons These high caliber weapons Like the AR-15 There's just so much power You can't do good with that When you read The Lord of the Rings, at the end The Shire is saved, but it can't go through all that evil and stay exactly the same. Frodo says to Sam, We
8: set out to save the
7: Shire, Sam. The Shire was saved.
2: And it has been saved.
7: But not for me. But not for me. I woke up last night, in the middle of the night, with the weirdest feeling. Like I couldn't move. I don't know, sleep paralysis or whatever. I, I was so dizzy. It was like the dizziness was in my arms. And I don't know, just kind of accepted and went back to sleep because at that point, like, like this, this is the least of my problems. I, I want to protect all my friends. I can't stop bullets midair. I can't stop depression. I can't stop PTSD.
1: I'm just so scared. You're listening to Florida Matters. We'll continue our recap of 2018's big news after we take a short break. I'm Robin Sessingham. We'll be right back. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham, and we're looking back at some of the top news stories that affected Tampa Bay and the state of Florida in 2018. Medical marijuana has regularly made headlines in the state ever since Florida voted to expand its program in 2016. There have been ongoing court battles over state regulations for the young industry, and back in April, Florida hit a milestone of having more than 100,000 patients in its medical marijuana registry. Earlier this year, we talked with people who work in the industry about its obstacles and opportunities. Now we'll hear a portion of that show. Darren Potter, chief horticulture officer with Grow Healthy, and Kim Rivers, CEO of TruLeave, talk about the lawsuit TruLeave filed against the state this year. The company wants to lift a cap that limits the amount of dispensaries a licensed grower can open.
8: We do believe the rural communities in the state of Florida should not be left behind in the program, and I think an unfortunate and unintended consequence of the 25 cap is that it concentrates dispensary locations in populated areas, heavily populated areas, and leaves out some of our more rural communities in Florida. And some of those communities are in, I would argue, uh, the greatest need for uh, dispensary facilities for the education opportunities that come with those physical locations, as well as the cost savings to have to avoid delivery. So right now, they're giving out
1: the dispensary licenses based on geographical density, I guess.
8: There's a a formula that is embedded in statute for those 25, and so you have what amounts to regional caps. So, for example, in Northwest Florida, we are only allowed two locations out of those 25. Because you don't have as many people as they do in South Florida. So it's based on census. And so Mm -hmm. what we're seeing, and it's already starting to happen, all of these companies are clustering dispensaries among the most heavily populated areas of the state. For example, if you go to the Tampa area, there are several companies, five or six even, um, that have dispensaries open in a very small uh, geographic area because, one, there's more physician activity there and, um, of course, just pure population numbers.
1: So what would be a better way to give out licenses for the dispensaries if you don't do it by census population?
8: Well, initially when we first applied for our license and one of the fundamental areas in which we were scored was that we had to come up with a plan to show that we could adequately serve, you know, all of the potential patients in the state of Florida. And there were no caps on um, dispensaries. And so we built a business plan around that premise that we were going to be able to open locations as it made sense for um, us as a company and for the patients in Florida. So I, I don't think it's necessary for uh, lawmakers to be involved in in where dispensaries are located. I think that that's a business decision.
1: So Darren, TrueLeave has taken the lead on litigating this, it sounds like, but it must affect your company as well.
5: Absolutely. I think Kim is spot on when she says uh, the more rural areas are underserviced and they're typically the greatest in need. You know, I would certainly like to be able to see dispensaries provide for patients that are in those rural areas and you have difficulties with municipalities, granting permissions, granting the authority to zoning rights to be able to put a dispenser in these locations. So these are some of the hurdles we run through. We don't just run through the the hurdles of the state limiting the number of dispensers. We also run through the um, the issues with the municipalities and whether they have a moratorium in place. So that's also part of the clustering Mm -hmm. that Kim's referring to, which is something that happened in a number of states that I've seen over the years. You know, in Colorado, when I worked there for a number of years, you had the Green Mile. Um, you had a, we called it Broadsterdam, which was Broadway, and all of the dispensaries were in one location. So it kind of created an environment where businesses felt uncomfortable because all the businesses surrounding them were medical marijuana treatment centers in Colorado. And I fear that can definitely be something that would occur here.
1: As we mentioned in the first half of the show, the Parkland school shooting had a major influence on Florida's legislative session. One result was a new law that required all schools to have armed security guards. Many districts across the state were concerned that they wouldn't be able to implement the requirements in time for the school year to start in August. We spoke with school officials across the Tampa Bay area on Florida Matters this summer about how they plan to comply with the law. We listened to Polk County Superintendent Jacqueline Bird and Pasco Superintendent Kurt Browning talk about the changes that families could expect to see when the school year began in August.
3: In Pasco schools, uh, they already see uh, in our middle and high schools the SROs. And I think that the Parkland situation actually, I keep using the word amped up, but really refocused the tension, I think, on our sheriff and our SROs is making sure they are more visible, uh, both at student entry, student exit in the afternoons, walking to the campus, checking gates, uh, making sure doors are locked, those kinds of things. When parents come to school at elementary, they're going to see the school safety guards I think that presence provides some level of comfort to moms and dads, knowing there's a, a man or a woman on campus that's highly trained, has a gun on their hip, uh, is in a uniform. I think it's psychological, and I do. And and I don't mean to minimize that, but I do think that's that's a big part of what drives the decisions that are being made.
1: Are they going to see more fencing, metal detectors, a single point of entry trying to, you know, so a single point of entry means 2,500 kids trying mm-hmm. to get in through the same door. and.
2: When we look at some of our high schools, we have high schools that have 2,500, almost 3,000 students in there, and in their sprawled out buildings. So as we're looking at single point of entry, you know, there's just no way I can get a single point of entry at that, at that point. But what we are doing to encourage people is those adults have to be visible when students are coming and going and changing classes, you have to have that visibility. Those gates have to be closed. I got pictures from parents telling me this gate is left open. And we tell them, if you see something, say something. But you know, when it comes to single point of entry, that's just one of the things that is it's hard to grab in the high school. In the elementary, it's a lot easier because you can follow them all through one way when they come in through either through two ways from the car riding the bus loop. But when you have a three thousand student high school. That's, you know, that's pretty
3: difficult. I don't know about Curt and Pasco. Yeah, they're
1: walking, they're taking their bikes, they're coming in bus. Yeah, the buildings are all spread out. It'd be very difficult.
3: And and I think school district know the Pasco district uh, has forever and a day struggle with, do we want our schools to look like community schools Or do we, and I hate to use this term, but or do we want to look like prisons? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, people tell you, well, let's put fencing around. I I got an estimate just for a price point. It was going to cost us $150,000 to put chain link fence around one school. I've got 90 schools. On top of that, if I want to get into a school, I can get into a school. I don't care how tall the fence is. Uh, you have single points of entry. You've got to have staff there. If you're going to have metal detectors, you've got to have staff there. You think about TSA when you go through the airport. I mean, they just don't let you walk through. There's folks that are going to yeah. go through your bags, your your backpacks. And what do they do
2: when they find something?
3: Yeah, you know, we are doing the very, very best we can with the resources that that we have because we want to make sure that our kids are safe. Mm-hmm.
1: The midterm elections made national news after three major races in Florida led to recounts. But even the state's August primary had some big surprises. Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum beat Democratic frontrunner Gwen Graham and became the first African-American nominated for governor in state history. And Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putnam, who establishment Republicans had initially thought would be a shoo-in for Florida governor, lost to Ron DeSantis. WUSF Steve Newborn reported from Putnam's watch party on primary election night during our special live episode of Florida Matters. We hear his story on the Polk County native's long political career in Florida.
4: Adam Putnam strolled confidently to the stage of an historic Lakeland Hotel less than 15 minutes after the polls closed. There, the man who had seemingly been on a fast track for governor announced something he's never had to say before.
5: You've stood beside me in the highs. You've stood beside me in the lows. And you've stood beside me in the winding path between the two. And for that, I'm forever in your debt.
4: Until then, there had been few lows for the 44-year-old Putnam. His concession speech was a first, the Bartow citrus and cattle farmer had never lost a race in 22 years. This outcome ends something of an era in Florida Republican Party politics. Veteran political journalist William March says many people who are familiar with Putnam knew he was aiming directly at Tallahassee. Adam Putnam has been on a
0: trajectory for the governor's mansion for well over a decade. And frankly, most of the Republicans in Florida expected that that was where Putnam would end up going. Well, his turn came up this year, and suddenly his plans get completely
4: upended by the involvement of Trump in this race. The momentum had started to drift away from Putnam by the time the president said this at a rally at the Florida State Fairgrounds in July. He's tough, he's smart, and he loves Florida and he loves our country, and he's going to be your next governor, Ron DeSantis. There had been a few bumps in the road for Putnam. His declaration that he was a proud NRA sellout came under attack after the Parkland school shootings. An investigation showing that many applications for concealed weapons permits were never vetted took off some of his gloss. But March says it was the Trump endorsement that carried the most weight with Republican voters.
0: It shows how completely Trump has taken over and dominated not only the National Republican Party, but the Florida Republican Party, and remade it in his image. It's now the Trump Party of Florida.
4: Back at a somewhat subdued election watch party at an historic hotel in Lakeland Tuesday night, Jim and Gina Mammel of Lakeland says the book is enclosed on Putnam's political career. Absolutely. He has a
1: servant's heart, and, yeah. and he is a, a born leader. So, And
0: if not governor, a good
5: senator in the future.
4: Putnam said during his concession speech that whenever one door closes, another door opens. And at the young political age of 44, he has a lot of time to veer onto the comeback trail. I'm Steve Newborn in Tampa.
1: Florida Matters brought you live coverage during the general election in November. The nation's eyes were on Florida as people wondered whether a blue wave would change the state's predominantly Republican government. The race between the progressive Andrew Gillum and President Trump-endorsed Ron DeSantis was considered an especially negative campaign. As the polls were closing, we invited listeners to call in and share their thoughts on the air about the election. We'll take a listen to one of those calls, which is followed up with commentary from political reporter William March. James is calling from Sarasota. James, hi, you're on Florida Matters. Hey.
3: Great. I always enjoy your show. Thank Great. you. I was, I've been a long registered Republican, um, and I regretfully voted Democrat across the board this time um,
2: because I think the Trump agenda is bankrupt. I think he's undermining
0: so much of what makes America America and is bringing us all down to his level. An earlier caller talked about Republicans being spineless.
6: I'd agree. They're supposed to be the ones that keep this guy in check and they've failed abjectly.
1: James, thank you so much for calling. That that was a that was a fascinating call. Go ahead, William.
0: Well it was fascinating and this election is very, very much about Trump and the sentiment that we just heard from this gentleman is pretty common among Republicans, even those who who aren't reacting to it by by turning to voting Democratic. Uh, I covered an appearance here by former White House political strategist Steve Bannon, one of the driving forces behind Trump's pugnacious rhetoric. And, and even he said during his speech, well, you may not like some of the things that Donald Trump says, but that's part of the package. That, that comes with the deal. Even he was acknowledging that some Republicans feel uncomfortable at the president's rhetoric, and he was telling them uh, not to be bothered or distracted by that, but to, to stay with Trump and support him. But I think that shows that, that what we just heard is not an unusual reaction at all. And among some Republicans, it's even driving them uh, to vote against him. The question is how many.
1: Well, as it turned out, not enough. Governor-elect Ron DeSantis ended up beating Andrew Gillum by a small margin, which a recount confirmed. A recount also could not save longtime Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson, who lost his seat to Florida Governor Rick Scott. The Democratic candidate for Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed ended up winning that office after a recount showed she had more votes than Republican Matt Caldwell. And that brings us to now. Looking ahead to 2019, these politicians and other lawmakers will start new terms in January. Most of the constitutional amendments passed this November, like restoring voting rights to felons, will also go into effect then. And Hillsborough County residents will start paying more taxes for transportation projects and school improvements. No matter what the news is next year, WUSF and Florida Matters will be there to help keep you informed. That's it for today's show. You can find links to all the 2018 stories that we revisited on our website, WUSFnews.org. Just click on the Florida Matters tab and Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. So if you can't be by your radio on Tuesday evenings or Sunday mornings, you can take us with you anywhere. Just click on the podcast link at WUSF.org. Our show is produced by Stephanie Colombini and is a production of WUSF Public Media. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.